Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our From the Trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Robert A. Young, Ph.D., Professor and Historic Preservation Program Director at the University of Utah College of Architecture and Planning specializes in stewardship of the built environment which synthesizes historic preservation, adaptive reuse, sustainability, and community revitalization. His career bridges both professional practice and academia where he has advocated for stewardship of the built environment. He is the author of the books Historic Preservation Technology and Stewardship of the Built Environment. He holds a doctorate in Metropolitan Planning, Policy, and Design, and has several graduate degrees that explore resource conservation in the built environment. Professor Young has won numerous awards for his leadership in advocating historic preservation education and practice, including the Utah Heritage Foundation Lucy Beth Rampton Award, the University of Utah Distinguished Teaching Award, and the University of Utah Distinguished Service Professorship. He is a licensed professional engineer and a member of the Association for Preservation Technology College of Fellows and an honorary member of AIA Utah. Originally from Maine, he has traveled to all 50 of the United States, several Canadian provinces, and parts of Europe. Thank you for uh, joining us today on the Practical Preservation Podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah. Okay. So I um, I know that we've chatted a little bit, and I I, I found you looking looking up books. So I'm I'm excited to have you on the call. Um, what to, um, can you tell me how you got started in preservation? Well, I was born and initially raised in Portland, Maine, and so I've always had an appreciation for older buildings. And as I was growing up, this was in the '60s. I I watched as uh, Buildings were torn down for urban renewal, and I also watched as the suburbs started to spread out. And so I was always kind of puzzled by that. And so I wanted to find out about resource conservation. At that time, getting into the 70s, it was the uh, energy conservation. That was a prevalent idea. And after I got into graduate school, I really began to realize that um, part of sustainability and resource conservation is the reuse of buildings. And so I'd always been interested because of my background in older buildings. And so I, you know, kind of, when I got into my career, I actually merged those two together. So looking at trying to save energy from the energy crises in the 70s and 80s. And so, but my real love has been preservation my entire life. I just, you know, really enjoy the old buildings and 
and sort of sensing what the history is about and hearing the stories of you know, how things happened in certain times and, and particularly my curiosity with how buildings were built, how they got expanded and changed through time. So that's really what's propelled my uh, impetus for uh, staying with preservation and as I call it now, stewardship of the built environment. Oh, I, I like that, this, I, uh, the stewardship, because I, I think that the majority of the people that we interact with view themselves as stewards, so I think that that is great. And I think mm-hmm. you kind of answered the question of why preservation, but um, the, when I was listening to you, you know, talk about how you got started, the, um, that's one thing that I find that we combat a lot is the, the idea that the older buildings are not you know, not green. They're not. They're not. They're not energy efficient. They're not. You know, there's there's so many. You know, all the people that were promoting their 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 new replacement products for mm-hmm. for these buildings that have you know gotten that thought into people's minds. So I think right. that that from early on that you have you have worked towards that. I I, I think that that's really really interest an interesting career path. But also, you know, it's. It's probably somewhat challenging when you're fighting against, you know, what is, you know, mm-hmm. the common common thought process. Right, and many of the uh, general public has perception that uh, new is better, and right. then the other part of it is preservation is either clinging to the past or freezing a building in time, and there there are concerns about, you know, well, what can I do with my building, or I don't know the the um, technology to, to actually do the work correctly or I don't want to follow certain standards because I'm just not familiar with them. So that's, yeah. um, as you look at that, when I've done my research, part of my research included my house, which I did a study on. Uh, we did basically what would be known as a gut rehab. We actually cleared out the inside uh, down to the framing. And so I was curious as to what kind of environmental impact that had. So as part of my study, I actually figured out how many how much new material was coming into the house, how much we, we actually retained from the original uh, construction, and how much of the demolition waste went to the landfills. And it turns out that uh, we essentially recycled about 86% of the house in place. Oh, that's great. So other than, yeah, other than uh, putting in new drywall, because the plaster was pretty well beat up, uh, and putting in new plumbing and that kind of thing. It was, it was quite an uh, eye-opening experience to see what that looks like and so then I went further and did another study that looked at how does that compare to, you know, if I just built a house in the suburbs or if I uh, just torn my house down. And as it turns out, uh, the, the relationship is that if you tore the house down, built something exactly like it, uh, you would use about eight times as much material in, in that material flow, including new material coming in and, and then all of the building going to the landfill. So that was a big eye-opener to me. And then... Uh, buildings themselves have technology within them. There are back when we didn't have you know, HVAC systems that you know they relied on you know warm air rising, so they have high ceilings, or if it's too cold, they have low ceilings, that type of thing. And so understanding yeah. the dynamics uh, really begins once you understand it, really begins to set you in motion to understand that there's a system there, and then we can supplement it with new you know HVAC type work, new lighting but necessarily we don't have to tear that whole building down to get to that point. You, using the building the way, um, the way it was intended to be used um, yes. so that you, that you do have the, it's, it's at least comfortable for, for the people. So mm-hmm. is that how, um, I, I know that you talked a little bit about the, 
the the environmental impact and the 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 energy crisis in the 70s is that how mm-hmm. you began to intersect then your your idea of sustainability and preservation yes that was very much that i'd done a lot of work on adaptive reuse projects as part of my professional career and then when i went into research in academia and teaching i really pulled that out even further because it's a thing that people don't realize. They think, oh, I mean, it's old, can't be, can't be energy you know, conserving at all. But what they don't realize is that you've already put a lot of material into the building and just to throw it away and put all brand new material in, you know, becomes a really downward spiral. I mean, if you think about it, you know, if we tore every building down and built a brand new building in its place, uh, we would be environmentally be in a much worse situation than we would be if we tried to reuse it. At the, um, I was at a traditional building conference oh, probably over 10 years ago, and that was the first time I had ever heard the term embodied energy. Mm-hmm. Embodied and energy, that, yes. Yeah, and, and that, was, that was like eye-opening to me. That, that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the concept had been there, but I guess I just didn't have a term to, to attach to it. Yeah. And it's, a, it's a bigger look at things because we think about when, when you buy a house, you know, the materials are there. And so that energy has already been spent to create those materials, but if we take those away and put new materials in, we're using new energy to create the same basically kind of environment, the living environment. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so and I the book actually that I that I found um, when you when I was searching on on Amazon was the uh, historic preservation technology book, and mm-hmm. I thought that it was really interesting that you went through you know building system by building system as what you know figuring out why the materials were failing and then how to repair them. You know why why did you why did you feel the need to write that book? When I went into teaching, uh, one of the courses I teach is a building technology class. And essentially, there was no uh, one book out there. There were a few that were very, very technical, but I was looking more at the understandable level, you know, sort of here's what you've got, and you know, not the very intricacy things, but things are just general practice that you should understand. And so part of that was a reflection of my own exploration, trying to sort out you know, what it is about lighting, what it is about paint, what it is about glass, those types of things that give you um, sort of a, a historic quality, and then how do you how do you work with those when they start to to fail? And so as I put that together in this class, eventually it evolved into the book because I needed you know once I got all the chapters written and everything kind of put in a sequence, I, I got a publisher so I could use it as a textbook, and that's where that came out. The last chapter in that book is a book on sustainability and preservation, and that actually spawned my second book, which is Stewardship of the Built Environment, and so that book really goes much further into the social, environmental, and, and, and economic sustainability of uh, building. Actually, I'm looking at old buildings in a way that you can see it from those perspectives. Those three uh, aspects are commonly known as the pillars of sustainability. So to apply them to preservation and really you know, explore what that means, I think was pretty important to do. And so that's how that second book came out. Oh, very, very interesting. And 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 then and I know I told you when I reached out to you that I that that the historic preservation technology book is on my list. Now I've added another book. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So um, okay, is there anything that you wish you would have known uh, when you started your career that you know now? Uh, first was the uh, professional aspects of the practice of preservation and adaptive use can constitute a worthwhile career. You know, some people think of it as 
you, know, you watch these shows on on cable, and it's things like uh, you know flipping a house, making just a minimum amount of uh, upgrades so that you can sell it. And so they don't, you know, they see that possibly as a career. But in the long term, you know, looking at the larger built environment, that you know there are a lot of um, buildings, uh, both in an individual scale but at the city scale, that you know really require a longer-term look at how we put the buildings back together, if at all. If we take them down, can we still reuse some of them? Can we use parts of them? And so that was what the big surprise was, that there was actually a career there professionally, not just someone you know, going out and flipping a house. And so that was the start. And then the second uh, thing I wish I had known was that the um, efforts overcome the myths that are associated with preservation. Excuse me. The... Um, idea, everybody's heard somebody who's had, a, had an issue with something in preservation in terms of going for a landmarks commission. You know, my, my friend went and they had to do this and they wouldn't want to take their house a certain color or whatever that is. And many of those are myths. Many of those are right. simply like it's passed down hand to hand. And it's almost like an urban legend in, in some cases that, you know, everyone just starts throwing those out there. When in reality, if you're familiar with you know, what the real processes are, that it's a collaborative process rather than, uh, you know, me versus you type of thing. It's more collaborating and understanding what the standard guidelines are rather than just saying, I'm just going to do this because I don't have anything better to do and, and then uh, getting uh, criticized or halted because you're not compatible with what the building is trying to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I um, sat in, um, I had gone to a local uh, historic um, group was having a, a, a talk and I thought I, the topic seemed interesting to me so I thought I'd go and half of the conversation was people raising their hands saying well I you know why why can't we do this and, and, and they were saying no you can't like it was it was it, it was you know it was explaining to people that you know as long as you're following you know the the Secretary of Interior guidelines you know those kind of things that you you can I mean I and I can say you know going into multiple municipalities I hardly ever have a hard time with those planning departments because we're going in preserving and and restoring. If you want to do something drastic, that's when you know people do have problems. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, while I was on the landmarks commission, we had you know both realms. People would come in and they really understood what they were, what their uh, range of freedom was, and they really you know interpreted it well. And then others who weren't familiar with any of the guidelines, which they're not you know law. It's just here's what we suggest that you do. Right. When you weren't familiar with that's where they really started going off in strange directions. And yeah. many of the cases that, that, that we saw when I was on Landmarks was the, the misapplication of the local zoning where, you know, building height was a certain height limit, and they were trying to exceed that. So many of the alterations that we suggested weren't necessarily, you know, pure preservation. It was actually, you know, you can't exceed these limits set by the, by the city zoning ordinances. So a lot of it was just education in that direction, not so much that, you know, you're doing this absolutely wrong thing. It's, you know, we're here to help you and help to guide you through this. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and, it, and it does make, you can, you can definitely tell which communities don't have good planning with just, you know, looking at, looking at what's happening in them. Mm-hmm. So um, what, what is the biggest challenge you see in, um, in preservation? Okay, I have um, five of them that I oh, sure. sort out. I mean, they're sort of in, in prioritized order. And I, I mentioned the first couple, but I'll mention them again. Overcoming the public perception that preservation freezes a building in time. 
that you know they don't recognize that it can be used as a, as a reuse as a viable modern contemporary building you know with modern features that still retain the historic overall character of the building itself and the neighborhood. The second is overcoming the myths, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, third is getting civic leaders to understand how the dynamic nature of incentives like tax credits have a long-term social, environmental, and financial benefit to the community at large and the built environment altogether. Uh, that, that's an issue that a lot of people, again, they think new is better, old can't be anything, you know, we're just going to get rid of that and, and you know, fix things up where there's a really middle ground there that really is rich for the taking. The fourth one is getting people to understand the holistic approach of assessing the social, environmental, and economic costs and benefits rather than simply financial benefit. So looking at um, making sure that they look at the whole picture rather than simply, you know, I can make X amount of dollars if I do just this. That's a big deal. And then finally, just my own personal one that uh, I see is getting people to understand that building reuse is the ultimate form of recycling. So it's a, as I mentioned, my house, we recycled 86% of it in place. So that was a surprise to me when we started. I didn't know how much of it you know, would actually keep, but it was um, you know, significantly higher than I expected. Yes, and, and I, um, because of being Earth Day in April, I've been, my mm-hmm. emails that I send out um, to our our mailing list have been, the themes have been sustainability this month. And I actually just made a meme yesterday that was the, you know, reuse of a building is the ultimate recycling. So Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of, um, I I completely agree. Um, What trends do you see uh, in preservation? In the past decade or so, I've seen a much greater sophistication emerging from how we look at the built environment. And so two things that are occurring is that there's more opportunity, perhaps since the recession back in 2008, but there's more opportunity to look at reusing a a building. And along with that comes, well, how do you understand what the building actually is? So there are two ways of doing analysis, not just specifically on the building, but in preservation altogether. One is the use of geographic information systems to analyze neighborhoods and potential you know, patterns of development and growth. And the other one is the specific use of what, are called, what is called LIDAR. It's the radar system, the light in, um, system where you can do measurements in what's called a data cloud. So it sends out a signal and it takes the time for that, that light to reflect back to give it uh, that distance and you can create uh, a visual or virtual recreation of the interior and exterior of buildings fairly quickly uh, as compared to measuring every single you know, piece of material right. in space. So that's a big trend. I think that's both in education and in practice where there's going to be a lot of, of growing demand as we further look into how to reuse the built environment. The yeah, second, that I, I haven't... Um, I, I have seen some projects where they're using the... the um, LIDAR? The lidar, but I, I'm I'm curious. I, I've never used it. Does it like take? Is it like taking a picture almost, or does it yeah, just do the it's measurements? A, it's a uh, like a timing. How long does it take for the? It sends out a, a signal, and how long does it take for it to come back to the receiver? And it tells what the distance is. Okay. So you can measure. So even if it's like a door frame sticking out, you know, from a wall, it's only like half an inch, but it can actually measure that distance. And so oh, you can really? Cool. It's like a like a gray cloud of of dots, and there's some things they have to clean up because, you know, their shadows and that kind right. of thing that the images can't see. 
And so it, it really has accelerated how quickly you can get into a building. And you see that used in quite a number of, of applications. One of the more recent ones uh, that I'm starting to see is even in real estate where they go in and they give you a virtual tour of someone's house. They can set these stations up and do a quick study and walk through the building and it'll, it'll basically stitch together all the rooms and they can give you a 3D model that you can look at and actually walk through visually uh, in the building. Other places where I've seen it used, um, there are various PBS television programs that they've gone into various uh, situations like the Acropolis in Greece, uh, uh, various cities in Europe where they've actually been able to measure things much more rapidly and get a greater sense of how the, the buildings are put together and what the, you know, over time they may have changed, they begin to see some of that, you know, the distance changes, the, the quality of the dimensions change. And so it's become much more of a uh, sort of a building programming tool where they can understand what's there and how they can quickly digest what the implications are for if they want to change something, if they want to add something, if they want to keep something, that type of thing. Oh, that seems, yeah, it definitely seems like it would accelerate that process. Mm-hmm. Where you're not going out and doing the physical, you know, every, you know, measuring every single element of the building. Right, and so I see a, a greater use of that, and again, the GIS systems in both architecture, engineering, and construction community. That you know, they worked there a few years ago, and these are things that are, you know, they're a delight to the preservationists when we can go out and do that measurement more quickly. And so there, I see that you know, moving closer together, so that. The skill sets the preservationists have been using are much more appreciated by the by the uh, architecture, engineering, and construction community. So I, I'm glad to see that. It's been one of the things that I've, I've been happiest to see in the last few years is that that result of recognizing you know, there is an opportunity here, both as a preservationist, but then also in this community that allows us to uh, overlap those skills. Yes. Um, the next trend that uh, I see yes. is on the more of online education. So again, with the use of the computer, being able to get a certificate in preservation. In some places, maybe even a degree, but we're not quite there yet. Right. Uh, the idea of being able to uh, go to a university that has an interdisciplinary study rather than just a singular study of preservation, a singular study of architecture, or planning, or engineering. There is a growing number of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary types of, uh, of units that are looking to um, you know, really understand how buildings perform and what they can do. And I think that that's important. I think, I think that everybody pro- does better when, when disciplines are, are talking to each other because you get different insights and different ways of looking at things, and, and I think it does help everybody. Everybody do better at, at their specific discipline. Mm-hmm. So um, let's see. How, how can our listeners contact you? My email address currently is young at arch.utah.edu. So they can contact me there, and that's probably okay. the easiest way. I, I prefer to get emails because it's something I can actually visually look at. Um, oh, sure. Text messages and, and that kind of thing just aren't quite there, and I'm so all over the place. I'm not um, in my office much anymore. <laughs> it's the case where that usually works best because I can get those on the road. Okay. Yeah, that that that'll be that's very fine and I'll make sure that that is on our website with the the synopsis and the and the and the and the actual audio file. Um did mm-hmm. you have any um I know you talked about your books and I'll make sure they're up. Did you have any anything else that you wanted to highlight um for the for the listeners? Um 
I can I can I'll gladly give a lecture as long as my travel costs are covered. So if you know okay. someone wants to hear me speak in person, I can uh, make that arrangement pretty easily, just as long as I get my travel covered. Okay, very good. Um, well, thank you very much. Is there anything else that you that you wanted to share that I didn't that I didn't ask or, or cover? I think we covered most of it that I can okay. make comes off the top of my head. Uh, I, I would I appreciate the opportunity to speak up on the stewardship and be able to, you know, again, hopefully have people further understand that it's not just an old building, that it's actually an opportunity for something creative. I agree. I, I appreciate your willingness to to um, to come on and, and, and join me today. I will um, get all of the the synopsis of what we talked about and everything up on the website for, for everybody to, to be able to refer to. And I, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.